today I want to, us to uh, finish up on uh, the idea of moving forward and the momentum of change. What is that momentum of change for people? Uh, we started this series really talking about uh, people, if you were to look at it from a spiritual standpoint, people are basically, most of us are stuck. If you're not stuck, you will be. Uh, we can grow and we reach a place where we reach that place like this guy is right here. And, and there's that place where you're stuck. You, you can't, uh, so most of the time we don't know we're stuck. And we can uh, certainly uh, make our home on the side of the cliff, as I think I showed. Uh, so there's lots of ways we approach stuck. I think our greatest challenge is to know uh, we're stuck. We're not growing. We're not going forward. Things in us aren't being changed and renewed. Because the idea of you and I getting unstuck is that we are really changing. The concept I, I kind of tried to go into last week is that uh, there are things we can do uh, with force. You know, there's discipline and there's uh, different ways that we can uh, mold and change our behavior. And those are good things. But they don't really represent change. They might represent a changed behavior, a, a change in the way perhaps I am operating or I am talking to someone. Maybe I've stopped talking to them at all, and that's the way I have stopped arguing with them. But we can do things, but it doesn't mean that I have changed. It doesn't mean that I am new. I am different. And that is the tough one, and that's the change that gets us stuck. You know, I don't like asparagus. Actually, I love asparagus. That's just me. Um, but I'm saying when we are at a place where it is truly feels like part of our core identity. You see, people who are bigots feel like they're there in their core. They don't feel like they are deceiving or, or redefining who they are. What God challenges is that our real identity is rooted in him. And so many times, many places, we're stuck in our life. And so it brings up these real questions. Um, why is real change so difficult? Why is it so difficult to like someone I don't like, to love someone I don't love, to forgive someone who does not deserve or want forgiveness? Why is my anger a difficulty for me? Why do I struggle telling the truth? Why do I lie about my past? Why do I lie about my present? You see, and my point in the beginning of this is being stuck very often, it's God's mercy that just allows crisis to bump us. He allows crisis to take its toll. It, it takes us to a place where we are never going to go on our own. So crisis does play a role. Now, we can respond to crisis any way we want, but it can move us. And so my, my feeling is 
so often it's crisis that is the default that actually challenges where we're stuck. Why do we do things that violate our own beliefs? Why does my purpose seem so limited to basically I'm trying to survive? Um, so, we can fix some behaviors. I call that surviving. Maybe for some of us, we're actually living. But at, but at the end of the day, we don't leave with any more than we walked in with. We survived. We burnt up our time and left. And you see, time is the key. Because no matter what you are, no matter how many gifts or talents or abilities you have, the day time stops for you, all of them stop. Time is the platform whereby everything in you happens. And so time is our friend, or it's not. Everything is operating in your time. It makes time critical. So are we surviving, thriving? Are we changing? Are we becoming someone new? Is God restoring and healing and unsticking us to the next time we stick and unsticking us. Is God able to move us? Or are we stuck and we repeat and repeat? And surviving seems like that must be the goal. And for many of us, it becomes the goal. And real change requires more than just these adjustments. Many believers, I think, want to see growth. But there is a power that will be required that is greater than you. You will not overcome your biases, your anger, your resentment, your hurt, your pain, the injustice against you, what perhaps you've done to others. You will not beat those with the tools that you carry. That will require a walk with God. That's why we get stuck. Did you hear what I just said? It will require a walk with God, and that's why we are stuck. If you hear that carefully, are we really walking with God? Not around him, not inside of him, not in front of him and behind him, but with him. I'm not talking about are you saved. I'm talking about is your day, is your life, walked out in the presence and in the power of God because that's where the change is. We might want to see those differences in our character, and I can tell you, some character is not going to change outside of the power of God. Some character issues are never going to change outside of the power of God. In enters crisis. God knows our problems. He knows our weaknesses. He knows the stock places. He knows the history. We read in Jeremiah, I shared this with you out of the message last week, Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. You know, I think a lot of people just have a really hard time buying that one. I got a lot of dark places. I've got some unfinished business in my heart. 
I have places that are not, un, that are not really known to me. God says, I search your heart. I examine your mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root. I'm at the stuck place. You see, that's, that's where life and death triggers, right there in the stuck place, in the root of things. Not in the behavior of things, in the root of things. And God says, I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. The heart is a hopelessly deceitful place. I think if we really knew our heart, we'd have a hard time with us. David makes the comment, you have searched me, Lord. This is in 139, 1 through 3, Psalms. And you know me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. My, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You know me, God. So he knows the real me. That's what he's trying to say. I know you. I know you. I'm still here. I'm still committed. I still love you. I'm the one who can help you. It brings us to the salvation message. Because this is where the good news story enters in. Because without a good news story, without something else added to this story, then we are left with hearts that are hopefully dark and deceitful, that we don't even know why we do all the things that we do. We don't know why we believe all the things we believe. We can't really describe all of the reasons our behavior happens. And we would just be doomed to live that life the best we could. But salvation, the rescue, is what our Father brings. When you get this, when we get that I am a person who only has so much ability with my gifts, my talents, and my time. I only have so much ability to affect change for me or for those around me. I just have so much ability. And most of us, we achieve that whatever that ability is. We get there and we're done. We fire that gun and it's over. And then you manage it after that. And that's where we become, that's who I am. That's who I am. That's how I roll. When we get it, I'm stuck. And I don't want to be this person. I want to be the person God has raised me and created me to be. When I get this and I invite him into my life, and I know that he can and he will make things new for me. Do you know that's what it says in the scripture? When he comes in, he will make all things new. Doesn't that sound great? 
He will make all things new. That's different language. You will be empowered with the greatest hope, the greatest power, the greatest truth, the greatest unfailing love with your sense of belonging, with your purpose. You will be empowered with those things. A hope that can believe in a better you. That believes not only is it true and possible, but I can move into it with God. A hope for a different me, a hope for a different life. A hope that my story has the kind of ending that you read books about, good books. The story that I would like somebody to tell someday. I finished well somehow. That's what salvation brings. But that salvation is a relationship. It is not just an act of God that then happens. It is a relationship that we enter into. Revelation 30 verse 20 tells us this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Doesn't that sound intimate? I mean, what an interesting way for Jesus to describe. I will knock. I will seek you out. If you open the door, I'll come in. We'll eat together. We'll be together. We will share together in life. Hear how intimate that is? That's the time we come together for the journey. When we invite God in, when we say, God, Help me with my life. Forgive me of my sin. Help me deal with the circumstances of my sin. But help me deal with the sin nature that I will begin to change. Here's what we're saying. In that language, it's Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. God, look inside me. What do you see? Talk to me about me. You know, don't talk to me about the church or the poor or the dying, the Muslims, the Christians. I need you to talk to me about me. And I need to be a person who will actually listen to know about me. Now it gets different. You see, that's what salvation is. Salvation starts with you. Not with the world, not with saving the world. It starts right here. It begins the journey of you 
becoming really aware of you and God showing you an all new you that emerges from that. I uh, have underlined some things. That's your hint in these next few slides. He bears the burdens of the day. Psalm 68, verse 19. God's wisdom is looking to you for a daily audience. Proverbs 8, 38. Daily dying um, to open up your room, open up room for your life. That's in Luke 9, 23. And I've added a comment on the bottom of that Luke 9, 23. Because when we think about this idea of to be his disciple, to follow him, hear that language, to follow him, to walk with him. He says, let me tell you a different way of saying that. You have to die daily. Now, I think often we look at that as something probably different than it is, to take up your cross. But really that's talking about You being willing to let God alter the things that are broken. To change and make new what doesn't work. You see, we don't often want to do that. There's a certain part of my pride I like. It feeds me. It makes me feel proud. Better than you. Sometimes I just need to feel better than other people. It makes me feel better than other people. So pride has this place that it wants to hold, and it wants to help me. Jealousy protects me. You see, jealousy helps me keep my wife in line or other people in line. Jealousy is the piece that makes sure that I don't don't get harmed by people I care about. Because jealousy just wants to help me. Anger, rage, all of those things, they act as tools of protection. And God says, they're killing you and destroying your relationships. And he says, we probably need to let that go. Well, that's done some great work. I mean, you need to be proud of your son. Pride is a, is a, is a formidable tool of good do, of goodwill. It's really hurting you, Bill. You want to you wanna let that go? Now, here's the tragedy of what I just said. Many believers go their whole life and never get to that depth of conversation with Jesus. Where Jesus can make that statement. You want to let that go? <clears throat> I've told this story, but a couple of years ago, I was in Phoenix. I was at a, uh, a church, uh, vineyard church thing. And I was, um, uh, my side of the story is, um, I didn't get an email that I allegedly got 
I received that wanted this certain material put together that I didn't have put together. And, um, you know, I looked foolish. And I go back to my hotel, and I'm praying and talking with God and really talking about this looking foolish and how foolish it made me feel. You know, and you kind of feel foolish, you know. you just And so you, you get defensive, all these things that people normally do, and they have felt foolish in a professional setting, certainly, or a peer setting. And in this conversation, I just really felt God's love and acceptance of me. That's really great. I mean, I felt like we were clicking, you know. It was like this foolishness and this embarrassment was just coming off of me, and God was just overpowering that with his love and his acceptance. It was amazing. And in the middle of this garden moment, God says these words to me. Do you know you're manipulative? I can't tell you how much I hate manipulation. And so when I hear this, this is out of the, out of the left field. I hear this from God. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. And then there's this silence. You think, okay, okay. So give me an example. That seems fair, don't you think? And he gave me one. Oh, I'm manipulative. I hate that. It was this nonchalant, it was a shock to me. But it wasn't to him. We worked on things that weren't on my list. But they were things that were hurting me. And we got to this intimate place where God could bring up his list. Intimacy is where change begins and where it ends. Daily, we die to manipulation, jealousy, anger, greed, pride, arrogance. Daily. Every day. Every day we have mixes in the world where we, we can pick those things up again. Every day. Jesus, when he was meeting with his disciples, he said, I have to wash your feet. If you don't let me wash your feet, I, you can't have any part with me. Peter says, and you need to wash all of me. He says, no, that's done. You need to wash your feet, though. You see, we daily walk with you. Did you pick that word up? Did you see it underlined enough? Daily, we have to get our feet washed. Daily. Jesus made daily time to be with the Father. As strong as he was, he was sinless. He was all these things. But he made getting alone with his Father. He made intimacy a priority. He had a busy schedule. He was saving lives, healing people, casting out demons, saving the world. He was on course with purpose and plan for all humanity. 
And he sees it, a powerful enough and a good enough thing that he stops all of that for intimacy with the Father. Daily. Daily. There's a warning about tomorrow in James 13 and 14. 4, 13 and 14. Now listen, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We must take care in today. Today is your time. And it is lived out and carried out without the intimacy with the Father. Then this day will be carried out without the intimacy of the Father. Uh, I want uh, something read here. This is going to be my uh, promo speech to get you all to come into the ministry. Uh, This is Karina. She's going to read this. And uh, I'll have sign-up sheets in the back when she's finished. Church-related ministry is dangerous territory. Truth be known, people who are moving into church-related ministry are venturing into dangerous territory. New York Times article, August 1st, 2010, entitled, Taking a Break from the Lord's Work, reported, The findings have surfaced with ominous regularity over the last few years and with little notice. Members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most Americans. In the last decade, their use of antidepressants has risen, while their life expectancy has fallen. Many would change jobs if they could. But while research continues, a growing number of healthcare experts and religious leaders have settled on one simple remedy that has long been a touchy subject with many clerics, taking more time off. The Lilly Endowment, a philanthropic philanthropic foundation based in Indiana, has awarded grants of up to $45,000 each to hundreds of Christian congregations in the past few years under a project called the National Clergy Renewal Program for the purpose of giving pastors extended sabbaticals. Clergy health studies say that many clerics have boundary issues, defined as being too easily overtaken by the urgency of other people's needs. In May, the Clergy Health Initiative A seven-year study that Duke University began in 2007 published the first results of a continuing survey of 1,726 Methodist ministers in North Carolina. Compared with neighbors in their census tracts, the ministers reported significantly higher rates of arthritis, diabetes, high blood pressure, and asthma. Obesity was 10% more prevalent in the clergy group. 
The results echoed recent internal surveys by the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which found that 69% of its ministers reported being overweight, 64% having high blood pressure, and 13% taking antidepressants. A 2005 survey of clergy by the Board of Pensions of the Presbyterian Church also took special note of a quadrupling in the number of people leaving the profession during the first five years of ministry compared with the 1970s. The pressures in ministry are enormous. The demands are increasing and the satisfaction diminishing. How can we expect to remain full of creative vitality, of zeal for the word of God, of desire to serve, and of motivation to inspire our often numbed congregations? Where are we supposed to find nurture and strength? How can we alleviate our own spiritual hunger and thirst? I hope to offer some ideas and some disciplines that may help in our effort to remain vital witnesses of Christ in the coming years, years that no doubt will be filled with temptations to unfaithfulness, a comfortable self-centeredness, and despair. Thank you. <clears throat> you ready to sign up? Pastors have a higher divorce rate. There's a suicide rate. There's a depression rate. Uh, it's more dangerous than musician, uh, munitions workers for, for life expectancy. How can that be? These are books written by pastors. They're great books. And they all start with their story. And every one of them is a crisis. Burnout, failed marriage. These are powerful people of God. So why has crisis become the primary way we experience real change? Because out of that crisis, they experienced amazing change. Now, I would love to say that, you know, gosh, maybe this means nobody should be pastors, and then the world would be a better place. The problem is pastors are human beings, and they violate the very things everybody else does. They surrender today. They are busy today. Last night at 9 o'clock, I was on a phone call with a person in tears, a marriage in crisis. That happens to me several times a week. Most of the time, it's people I know. Most of the time, they are people who have never said anything about a marital problem. You will not find a church with fewer activities than this church. Now, for some of you, that may be a huge disappointment, not a way to plug in. But there's a reason for that. We live in a very busy world. 
And our desire is to leave room in your life to figure out how to have a family, work for a living, and be someone who walks with God. I can't make you do that. My responsibility is actually me. But what we can do here is tell you the truth, that that is the place real life is found, not in a church activity. What you need, what is going to make your life better, is Jesus Christ in your personal life, not a class at church. I love teaching classes at church. If anybody would come to one, I would do it. I'll teach one on flying. It doesn't even have to be about God. I love teaching. But I would rather you find 15 minutes of honest time with God. We teach. We will continue to teach. But we place a priority on doing the best we can to make time available for you to figure it out with God. But that will be your part every day or you will surrender today. And today is the most powerful thing you have. It's for all of you, all of your gifts, all of your capabilities are here and ready. Daily is an intimate thing. It's an intimate thing. Have you ever been at a dinner or lunch with people that you really don't know and you get past that layer of, you know, stuff that you can throw out there and hit the ball around? You kind of get out of bullets. You try to go to the different wells, you know. What do you think about the rockets or something? And, oh, who are the rockets? Okay, well, we'll scratch that one. And, you know, what are you really out of is, You're out of relationship. That's the problem. You're out of relationship. We we run out of relationship with God pretty quick. We know to tell him some things we need, ask him why some things didn't go right, do some begging, vent a little bit, and then often we're gone. It's because it lacks that intimacy that comes with time. God wants to walk with you. Wants to walk daily in your life with you. He wants to help you every day. He desires to be your friend and help you every day. He wants to help you even the places that you don't want help, but you really desperately need them, need it. He wants you to learn to have real deep conversations with him, just like you have with yourself every now and then. He longs for that. He longs to be a voice in your heart and head that can speak and you hear. I was reading a a story in one of these books that was interesting 
there was a coach who uh, never yelled, never did the shouting, never did the screaming. Even at games when the crowd is going crazy, he would talk in a normal tone. And that was actually years later that one of his players was talking about him. He said, you know, it could be the room was going crazy. And in that room, there were two people I could hear. I could hear my dad and I could hear my coach. Isn't that an amazing story? He could hear. He trained to hear the important voices in the crowd. That's what we do and intimacy. We learn to hear that voice. It's awkward, but we learn it. And I say, Bill, how do you know? I'd say, you'll know. Just give it a try. You'll know. He wants you to let him bring everything He wants you to let him bring everything you need that is not available to you. The story I gave you, I really needed a firm affirmation when I was in that hotel room in Arizona. I needed someone to tell me I was a good guy. Someone to tell me I was, they were proud of me. In that moment, I needed, I needed some things. When somebody playing ball misses that pop fly they should have had and they lost the game because of it, that person more than anything desperately needs to get and receive affirmation. We need love. We need acceptance. We need someone to be proud of us when we suck. We need. And we steal it from places We'll get it from people. We'll take it from loved ones. Daily is an intimate thing. And God invites you into that daily thing. That daily time with God. You see, in that daily time with God along the way, you'll look at your life circumstances through a totally different lens. You're going to be looking at your life with him. But it's someone who unconditionally loves you, believes in you. That's how you will be looking at your life. You will be able to understand things that you need and things that you need to do for others. If you walk with God, you'll get it. You'll get, I need to do this. I need to do this right here. I need to do this right here. You'll get it. If you walk daily with God, You're going to understand things about your lifestyle that would also need to be permanently changed. You're going to get it. I want to share with you a problem with counseling. 
Here's the problem with counseling. I don't know your problem. And you might tell me your problem, but I don't know that that's your problem. I might know you're in trouble even before you ask for help. I see that very often. I might know uh, what you present in this church is not real. I might know some of your problem behaviors. Doesn't mean I know your problem. Often I know there is one before the person admits it or before they know they have a problem. But it doesn't mean I know what's really the problem. So I'm going to give you the cliff notes. I'm going to give you the short version. Here it is. You are the problem. There. I just gave you the perfect answer. And Jesus is the solution. Now let's see what we do in counseling. When we sit down, we look at the particulars of your particular issue. And they have to be brought into a fullness of light. And then we have to address the particular actions that you need internally. Maybe you need to forgive yourself. Maybe you need to confess sin. Maybe things need to happen right here. And then you may have some follow-up actions that may need to happen where you need to forgive people or you need to ask forgiveness from people. That would be external. And then we have some permanent things that might need to change in our lifestyle. Does that sound familiar? Because if we go back three slides, that's exactly what God wants to do in your life every day. Every day, he wants to be your counselor. The problem with me or some other person as a counselor is what we really need to be doing is leading you to truth. The truth about you and the truth about how to deal with it. But God is still the answer. You don't need a counselor. I, many of us do need counsel, so don't get me wrong here. I'm not obsoleting. I'm saying what we actually do as counselors, what I'd like to think of it is we are kickstarting or jumpstarting the process of you connecting with God. We are, we are manually doing what God does. We're showing you here's what God does. He opens up the bag of worms. Let's get honest and transparent. And then when we get honest and transparent, then we can kind of see the part that's our part. And we're going to show you the things that you need to handle that's your part and the part that maybe is somebody else's and what you need to do externally and then what needs to change about my lifestyle. We're going to help process that with you. But you see... What we're really doing is manually jump-starting the God system of walking daily. Does that make sense? Because if not, you just wait until you're stuck and go to the counselor. 
or get drugs or whatever you do or when you get to the crisis. It's not just preachers. Preachers get busy doing God things. But they will suffer the same fate as somebody doing flying airplanes, working in a plant. It's not different. To not walk daily with God has the same result. And no matter what you're doing with your time, who you are, how much you know about God, how much you study the Bible, it won't matter if you don't walk with him and figure out how to do it. And you live a life of stuckness. And crises are almost good for us because they hopefully break us loose. So I'm going to give you four pieces in the plan. A way to start your own motor. Number one, mandate a part of your day for God and God alone. It'll be a fight. But it's your fight. How you do that is your business. The amount of time, that's your business. If you can get intimate with God in 18 seconds, more power to you. That's yours. Figure it out. Number two, discuss deep things with him, real things. I mean, you can ask him for an A on a paper. I would. You can ask him to help with something you're struggling with. I certainly would. But think of the whys that are about you and less about him. I could say, God, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you fix that? Can you think of a why it has to do with you? The answer is not quite as important as you learning to ask. Number two, uh, under two, listen closely in your thoughts for an answer. Might even be another question. Think carefully about answers and motives and motives that may drive them. You can pick up the conversation later. You don't have to completely finish it. The joy is getting it started. And if you're awkward sitting there with really not much going on, it's okay to sit there a little bit awkward. One of my favorite movies, A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise is a very good lawyer, but he's a defense lawyer that always gets people off by pleading really good cases. He's actually never been to trial. And he finally gets kind of bullied into a courtroom, and when he walked in, he says, so this is what a courtroom looks like. That reminds me of a lot of Christians 
They know the Bible. They're good at quoting it. They're good at doing a lot of it. But you kind of finally get with God in the presence of God. Wow. So this is what it's like in the presence of God. Number three, find ways to connect with God. It's great to have the Bible in common with him. You can talk about that. Ask him questions. You can ask somebody else here, but ask him. You have you in common. You have the world in common. You have a lot in common. Work on that. If I were talking to a group of pastors, I wouldn't change a single word of this. These books are written by pastors, really, to pastors. Because they sacrifice the important for the urgent. That's what pastors do. That's what all of us do. Number four, invite others into your process. Have someone you trust to share some of this with. Here's what God and I are talking about. Develop relationships with others that are walking with God. What's God saying to you today? How's God speaking to you today? What's God placing on your heart today? You see, it's in that place that we can begin to find contentment in any kind of circumstance. Find some time for God. Make it his. No one else's. If you do that, He will come in, and he will eat with you, and you with him. And you will begin to know his voice inside you, his thoughts as they come up inside you. And they will feed you life like you've never had before. And when you have the biggest screw-up of your life, you're going to find he's right there to catch you. And depression and suicide and anger and rage lose their grip. And what you will find is you have begun to change here. You would stand. <laughs>